The scripture, I'm going to ask you please to, uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, uh, as we come now to, um, to this, which is the very word of God, uh, I pray that you enable us to receive it as such, even as we hear it read, that we would hear your voice in it. We would know that it comes from you, that it really is true, and we can bank on it. So enable us to trust you, God, and to trust all that you say in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians in chapter 1, please. I want to read the first 11 verses, 2 Corinthians, and uh, in chapter 1, please. This is the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comforts, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. Now, we finished Jonah uh, last week, really, by uh, that passage in Matthew where Jesus speaks of Jonah. And so I want to take up, uh, for my time this summer, I'll be in and out, and then we'll pick it up again in August, this uh, letter to the church in Corinth. We call it Second Corinthians. It's probably fourth, but we'll call it second because that's what it, it has listed here and what it is in terms of what we have. Two letters, not four. And by to this being the last of the letters. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Um, now, you may wonder why 2 Corinthians. So let me give you a little background in my thinking. Uh, you know why. I mean, first, it's in the Bible. But second, I've been, I've, been, I've been thinking, really, about two things primarily in the last week, which is a bit much for me to think of two things. But I've been thinking about two things uh, in the last week. Uh, one is that uh, Karen and I received recently an invitation uh, to go uh, this January to Thailand to teach 
some missionaries. Now, we haven't decided if we're going to go. Lots need to be worked out on their end and our end. In fact, I haven't told the elders yet, so um, we'll talk about this. But, uh, um, but I've been thinking about that because I've been thinking about what I could share with them. And, 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 and I must say this, that the reason that this group of missionaries is meeting in Thailand is because they can't, they can't meet together in the countries from which they come for fear of reprisal, for fear of persecution. And so I'm going to meet with a group of missionaries. We are Karen and I. I'm going to meet with them. These people who've sacrificed much for the sake of the gospel and live in a situation where they're really in fear, if they didn't trust Christ, of, of at times their own lives and their own well-being at least. And, and I must say that my suffering for Jesus' sake quotient seems way less than theirs. And so I wonder what it is that I can share with them uh, during this time. Uh, I mean, my only ticket there, our only ticket to see them, is because one of them happens to be a kid. He's no longer a kid. He's 50. <laughs> he's a kid. Because we knew him when he was 16. And uh, he's been in China for 30 years. And, oh, I should, probably shouldn't have said that. Uh, but anyway, um, he's been there uh, for 30 years. And so this is his group of folks throughout Asia. Um, to meet there anyway. So, so I thought Second Corinthians, and you'll see why if you haven't gotten the drift of it already from what I've I've read. It's it's a letter that Paul addresses very much his own suffering for Jesus' sake, and why it's predictable for an apostle to suffer for Jesus' sake, and how it is that he can suffer for Jesus' sake. And introduce a discussion of his sufferings by saying, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he can say that, so I trust I can say that with these missionaries. But then secondly, the second thing on my mind has been vacation Bible school. It's been a great joy to us. I mean, Lindsay uh, was was uh, helpful the other night as she was at the program and, and introducing everyone and everything and and to talk about our history of Vacation Bible School at Grace CBC and the fact that the first one started in a backyard and uh, one backyard and uh, and uh, moved on from there. We went from there to a park and uh, then finally after seven years in the elementary school uh, built our own gym so we could begin doing Vacation Bible School there and then it just sort of, well, it is what it is now. And, uh, and you see it. And so it, it's gone from there. And it's a great joy for us because we really do believe, of course, that God changes the lives of kids. We really do believe that God transforms them, as we talked about this week even, with our kids. And does that by his word and spirit through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we, we have confidence that as we share with them about Jesus, that the spirit of God is at work in their lives um, to bring them to to the Father, to bring them to God. 
And that, that our kids can be reconciled to God, that our kids can know forgiveness of sins, that our kids can know the presence of the Holy Spirit within them to sanctify, to transform them. And they can start this chain reaction as, as the kids learned about. I'm not sure the scientific concept was there, but, but the, the biblical one was there. Uh, this chain reaction that will go through from them uh, to others and back again. And so, so all of that is great. And, and we're, we're so thankful that uh, we have these, this time with our kids. Uh, to teach them, and, and the kids in the community, some of whom are church, so that what we taught them this week will be enforced by their parents and their churches, and yet some kids that aren't churched, who won't hear this anywhere else, and we pray for them, that they've heard it, that God has worked in their hearts by way of it, and even though it may not be reinforced at home, and even though they may not have a church to reinforce, so we pray for them, that God will bring friends to them and other families to them who can help them and lead them and encourage them. Some of them may be you all because it's your kids that invited these kids, and so you'll have opportunity to, to be in the lives of these unchurched kids. And uh, we trust that through the course of their life, God will sustain them and uh, they'll find fellowship. Um, as many of you know, I've shared before, my mom uh, became a Christian by happening on a vacation Bible school in her community. And, and so uh, it may be your uh, testimony as well. And so we, we know that God is at work in, in all of this. And so it's, it's, it's wonderful that, uh, that all of this is the case. But as I've been thinking about that, and as I stand and watch, because that's all I do during VBS, I just watch. I'll do anything else. So please don't say thank you to me. People do that. They say, thanks, Bill. I just watch. But, um, but as I've been watching and looking at these kids, and, and, and I realize that this, this life, that we're introducing them to by way of the gospel and that they're receiving by the work of the Holy Spirit is, a, is, is really the only life. I mean, there is no life, real life, apart from Christ. It's the only life. We know that any other living is death apart from Christ. It isn't that God doesn't provide those who aren't believers in Jesus with a measure of happiness and it isn't that he doesn't use their lives to bless others. He does, but, but we know there's only real life, real hope, real eternal life by knowing Jesus. But we, and so we know, therefore, that it's essential to them. It's necessary to them. It's joyful. It brings joy and peace and all of that in their lives. But, but we also know that it comes at a cost. Not just to God and through Jesus, but Jesus speaks of the cost of following him. He talks of leaving everything else behind and following him. Now we know, as Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3, that all that we leave behind is worthless compared to all that we receive. We, we know that. But it's real. Uh, we, we know in, in these days of Christians throughout the world who are being singled out for persecution and injustice simply because they're followers of Jesus, believers in Jesus. We know that. That hasn't typically been our experience, at least like that. But we know that that's been the case, is the case 
throughout the world. And some of us know that even as being followers of Jesus, being Christians, the cost that's involved in that. I mean, you know, I, even in my own life, I, I can attest to the fact that there are people who think I'm an idiot or a kook uh, for believing in Jesus. Um, that doesn't mean I'm not an idiot or a kook, but it isn't because I believe in Jesus, at least. Um, they might be right about that, but not because I believe in Jesus. Uh, some of you have felt that, you know that, in your work with family, with friends. That relationships have been harmed, if you will, hurt because of your faith. Some with those you care deeply, deeply about. So you know that. We've experienced some of that. But we do realize, at least it seems to us, that, that the days in which we live now and the days in which we face and the days in which our children face may be very different than the ones in which we've lived through. The ones that we've known historically in our country. Things have changed. Things have changed very foundationally. You know, there was a time when at least... Uh, what we thought as Christians and what our culture sort of embraced, at least rather broadly in terms of moral principles, where we're very much, at least it seemed, on the same page, that you could talk about things and give your opinions about things around the water cooler without fear of reprisal. But, but th- that's no longer the case, at least in certain kinds of subjects. Foundationally, we know that the world in which we live is beginning to think very differently about who we are is created in the image of God as male and female. What it really means to be family, all of that. We know that these things are very different today than they were not too long ago. And, and I know because of discussions that, that some live in a measure of discomfort, even fear, about what would happen if those with whom I work knew I thought this. And just an understanding that those things are not as open for discussion as they once were in the culture in which we live. And so Christians may be more socially conspicuous than we ever have before. Now, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. But it may be a costly thing. Socially, politically, economically, right? Relationally, it it may be that we become more conspicuous because of differences in how we understand life than ever before. In 1637, uh, Samuel Rutherford, a Scottish pastor, actually he was a Presbyterian. He was a delegate, Scottish delegate to... Um, Westminster Assembly. Um, he was in prison for his faith. And he was writing to a friend of his, a, a friend uh, whose, um, whose name is Alexander Henderson, a Reverend Alexander Henderson. I don't honestly know the whole context of this. It comes from his letters. I don't know the, the relationship between the two. But, but, uh, but Rutherford was, was writing uh, to Henderson, um, I assume to encourage him, but he was writing him from prison. And he said this, he says, God has called you to Christ's side, meaning you're, you're a fellow pastor and you're a Christian. So, so that's true. It's true of all of us that God has called you to Christ's side. 
And the wind is now in Christ's face in the land, and you are with him. So Rutherford is saying, the land is against Christ. For a good Scotsman, the wind at your back is a good thing. The wind in your face, not so much. God has called you to Christ's side and the wind is now in Christ's face in the land and you're with him. You cannot therefore expect the sunny side of the hill. So so you see, you can't expect the warmth of the sunny side of the hill because the wind is in Christ's face. And if the wind is in Christ's face, then it's in your face too. But he ends with this line and he says, but I know that you've resolved to take Christ on any terms. In other words, I know that you believe, I know that you're his and so you'll take him regardless of the wind. And, and, and I don't know, I'm no prophet, please. I don't know what's going to come. Hard enough time figuring out what has come. But it appears that the wind is in our face because it's in the face of Christ. It's always been true, no doubt, but perhaps in various ways, more so, more obvious ways, uh, Ways now. It may be that in, as in some places in the world, Christianity will be seen as detrimental to the well-being of the society. And then I think about our kids. And I think as I watch them sing the songs and the joy that that brings, I mean, it was just delightful. But then, and I've said this before, I've said it to my own children, that I do realize that what we're sharing them to be true about Jesus, what we're calling them to believe, could lead to their persecution and death. And I want to ask myself, What gives me the right to do that? Well, the answer is, of course, that the answer is right here in 2 Corinthians. Paul Paul brings it in in, in, in 2 Corinthians in chapter 4, verse 16. He says, so we don't lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light and momentary affliction. Now, when... He speaks of affliction, and that word is a graphic word. It means being squeezed as if in a vice, right? Uh, picture grapes being pressed. That's affliction. It's that kind of pressure. It's, it's pressure. It could be physical. It could be emotional, spiritual pressure. He says, for this light and momentary affliction. Now, we'll get into, a, as, we, as we peruse this letter, we'll see the kind of affliction that Paul was in, and, 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 and you and I would never describe it as either light or momentary. He considered to be, it's considered to be very heavy in and, 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 and the course of his life, but he calls it light and momentary. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In other words, he's convinced, as we should be convinced too, even as we share with missionaries and what they're going through, and even as we share with our children, that we should be so convinced 
that following Christ is of such great value, so worth it, really life, and whatever else happens isn't worthy to be compared to the, the greatness of following Christ. I suppose in a trite illustration, it's sort of like a coach in the beginning of the season looking at his players, and he knows what he's going to put them through as their coach. You know, and he knows it's, it's going to be difficult for them physically and emotionally and, and, and mentally and all of that, but, but he's going to do it anyway. And he's going to do it because he has this sense, this conviction that that will produce something that they'll see and they'll look back and say, what we went through was worth it. You know, and they'll look at their coach at the end of the season and say, praise be to you. You know. Or perhaps a professor, as he hands out the syllabus, he knows, ooh, this is going to cost them. This is going to, if they do what I'm going to require of them, it's going to cost them. But I, I really believe that if they do it, and pay the cost, if they do it, they'll sacrifice some parties and they'll sacrifice a bit of this and a bit of that. But if they do it, at the end of the semester, they will have learned so much. That they'll look at me and say, praise be to you, professor. Maybe not. <laughs> but that's the hope of it, isn't it? I mean, that's what you're really thinking. And, and, and for parents, the same thing as we raise our children. That, that we know that there'll be discipline. We know that there'll be lessons. We, we know all of that. And, and yet we're still going to do it. And they'll fight us tooth and nail. But we do it because we really believe that that will be to their benefit. And at the end of the day, when they have their own children, they'll look at us and say, praise be to you. <laughs> right? And so there's this sense that Paul knows it. He knows that even though he's suffering deeply, and even though the people in Corinth don't like the fact that he's suffering, we'll get to that in a minute, that there's something to it. And he's having to say to them, no, 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 no. This happens because we're related to Jesus. And when the wind is in his face, it's in our face. And when the wind is in his face, we can expect the sunny side of the hill. But you know what? If we take Christ, no matter what, then you with me, even in the midst of this suffering and sacrifice, you'll be able to say, praise be to God. Now, this letter, I have to tell you as we begin, is, is, is one of the most well-known, really. You may, you may not ascribe everything that you know about the Christian faith to 2 Corinthians, but, but after you read it, you'll say, oh, yes, I do, really. There's, there's a lot, really, that's here that, 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 that's just profound for me. For instance, in chapter 1, he talks about, in verse 20, he says, For all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. I mean, that's one of those verses that Christians have in their pocket. That, that, that all of his promises are yes and amen in Jesus. That, that he's the one, Jesus is, he's the one who guarantees the fulfillment of these promises. So every promise that God has made to us is fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, that's, that's crucial for us. That's, and then in chapter 3, you know, this, this passage where Paul writes to them, verse 3. And he says, and, and you show that you're a letter from Christ Delivered from us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And we realize that that we, each of us, and together as a church, and together as, as the church, that we're the very letter of God to the world. It's written upon us that it's really true. 
And, and then in, in, in chapter 4 and verse 7 is this passage where Paul writes, but we have this treasure in jars of clay, or when I was a kid we memorized in earthen vessels, um, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and, and not to us. And, and we know that and we think about that. Yes, we are weak and we do hold this treasure, the truth of the gospel, the spirit of God Christ in us, uh, in, in jars of clay. We're easily broken, but we know that... That, that it shows his great power. And then the passage I read to you um, a few moments ago uh, about our light and momentary affliction. And then chapter 5, you know from every funeral I trust you've ever gone to, where Paul speaks of the fact that when we're in the body, we're away from the Lord, but when we're out of the body, we're in the presence of the Lord. What a great thought. And then this expression that we use all the time, that we live by faith, and not by sight. It's here in chapter 5. And then, and then as he goes on, he speaks to us that we're new creatures in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, we all know that verse. The old has passed away, the, the new has come. We know that we're ambassadors of God. That's right here. We know the, the great exchange uh, of verse. I always call the Jerry Bridges verse. It's 2 Corinthians 5.21. That for our sake, he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We, we, I mean, how could we live without that? Without knowing that, you see. And then in chapter 6 is the great unequally yoked passage that we, we talk about all the time. Really, it's the context is worship, but uh, we use it often as we think about, as we think about marriage. And then in, in, chapter, in chapter 7, we have the, the passage about real repentance. And then in chapter 8, we have that wonderful expression about the sacrifice of Christ himself, that he who was rich became poor for us, so that through his poverty, we might become rich. A great, a great passage. And then in chapter 9, he speaks of sowing and, and, and reaping. Uh, in chapter 10, he speaks in verse 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ for he begins in verse 4, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. And so he, he talks about spiritual warfare, how it is that we deal with these evil spiritual forces. Then in chapter 11 and, and chapter 12, he, he, chapter 11 especially speaks of his own suffering. And chapter 12 is that wonderful passage about Paul's thorn in the flesh and how God sustains him by simply grace, the word of grace. That my grace is sufficient for you. So, so that's what we'll, we'll find as we work our way, as we work our way through. So today, all I want to do is take a moment, really, and introduce. Introduce something that will set the stage. Because you see, when Paul founded this church in Corinth, he experienced trouble from his own countrymen, from other Jews. He went to the synagogue, as he often does. He was a tent maker there in Corinth. He met Priscilla and Aquila. They were tent makers, so they became friends, and, and they have a history as we work through the scripture. But he met them. They were tent makers, and he began to work with them. And on Saturdays, he would go to the, to the synagogue, and he would, he would speak about Jesus. They kicked him out. So he went to the Gentiles. And there was a bit of a ruckus. Paul was called in front of the, the, the authorities, but, but nothing happened to him because God had met Paul spoken to Paul audibly, it appears, uh, while he was in Corinth. And God said to Paul, don't worry, you're not going to be harmed. Uh, I have many of my people 
in this city. And so Paul, with boldness, then could go. And he knew he wasn't going to be harmed. And he wasn't, though he was arrested. He wasn't harmed. And after a while, he left and he went to Ephesus. Now, there are all kinds of problems developed in the church in Corinth. Corinth itself was a decadent city. It was a wealthy city. It was a sexually immoral city. Uh, and so all of that permeated the city and, and permeated the church as well. Um, we, didn't ex- we would expect that. And so as these people were being sanctified, if you will, they were still with them. The city of Corinth was in them. And so Paul writes to them, uh, and uh, you, you might remember what we call 1 Corinthians. He writes to them, there's all sorts of problems going on. There's there's, there's pride going on. Somebody's saying, this teacher's right, this teacher's right, this teacher's right. I'm going to follow this one and this one and this one. And Paul says, no, no, no. We follow Jesus. You remember him. He's the one who died for us. I didn't die for you. Peter didn't die for you. Um, so, so we follow the one who died for us. This, this one who is, in fact, Jesus. There's, there's a great immorality that's going on. There's a man in the church who's being with his father's wife. And nobody seems to be... Concerned about that? And uh, there's drunkenness even at communion. There's all kinds of things going on in worship concerning spiritual gifts because of the pride that they have and the, the kind of how they're expressing all of that. And they have this sense too, what theologians call, you don't have to remember this, you may not, but you may want to. Uh, it's a word called an overly realized eschatology, which means that they think everything that's going to be in glory for us and the kingdom comes in its fullness, is here now. In fact, Paul writes to them with a, a bit of sarcasm in, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 2, in, 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 in verse, verse eight, or chapter 4 and verse 8, and he says, Already you have all you, all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. He's saying, he's saying you, you think... You're ruling and reigning, and, and you're kings already. Uh, you don't understand what it means to follow Christ now. Because you see, what was happening is, at least by the time Paul writes his second letter, there were these people who had come into the church, and Paul, again, sarcastically calls them super apostles. And they looked as if they had everything together. They were successful in every way you could imagine. No doubt they were handsome and, and, uh, and, and, and articulate and everything that Paul wasn't, at least in the eyes of people. And they saw these super apostles and they seemed to be well accepted by everyone. And here was Paul, this apostle, who everywhere he went, he was persecuted. And you can only imagine after a while... He gave the appearance of one who had been persecuted a lot. And so he wasn't very much to look at. And he wasn't very much to listen to. And so they thought he must really not be from... I mean, if he was really from God, why would he be suffering so much? And Paul's going to make the case throughout 2 Corinthians. It's one of the most personal books of the New Testament, of, of the whole Bible. Because Paul will take this time to actually defend his apostleship and to tell them why they must listen to this beaten down, persecuted apostle. And he's going to share with them the nature of suffering in his life 
and the nature of suffering in the Christian life and why it leads to blessedness. It's, all of the Bible is real. It's about real life. But here we have a glimpse into the life of this one who's living this real life. And from it comes this infallible word to us about how we're to understand suffering in all kinds of ways, but suffering most especially for Jesus' sake. We, we see the introduction of it in, in this passage. You can, you can see it. He uses... In just these 11 verses, he uses the word affliction four times. He uses the word suffering three times. And so, so there we have it. Just in a few sentences, he's using this word affliction, often this word suffering often. But, but countering that, he's using the word comfort ten times. And, and notice how he puts it. He says, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. This little expression, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is, is, is kind of a, a spin, if you will, on what was said in the synagogues every week. What was said in the synagogues every week was, blessed be the God of our fathers. Well, that would be true. The, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. Yes, Praise be to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Paul takes that and Christianizes it, if you will. He takes it and he says, no, no, this is what that was really aimed at. Praise be, blessed be uh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. All sonship, all knowing the fatherhood of God, comes through Jesus and being related to him. Now, have you ever thought... What it really means that the Father is both the God and Father of Jesus. I mean, we, we understand that the Father is the Father of Jesus because he's the Son. He's the eternal Son of God. Last week we used the Nicene Creed, the Nicene Creed for our uh, profession of faith. Uh, and we speak of Jesus as the only begotten of the Father begotten before all worlds. That was their way of saying eternally begotten. He's, he's always been, always is the Son of God. And so that relationship, Father-Son, is, is eternal within the Trinity. I know this is a little strange. Eternal within the Trinity. But why would the Father be Jesus' God? Isn't Jesus God? Isn't he divine? And the answer, of course, yes. In the complexity of the nature of Jesus, we know that when he was incarnate, humbled as a man, he was placed under his father as God. That's why when he was dying, he would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then after his resurrection, he said to Mary in the garden, when he saw her after the, he was raised, he said, I, I'm ascending to my father and your father, my God and your God. He's the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who he is. And thus he's the God, he, I'm sorry, he's the father of all mercies. 
So once we know God as Father through Jesus, which is the only way to know God as Father, the only way to know yourself to be a child of God is to believe in Jesus, to be united with the Father through the Son. That's the only way to know God as Father. To those who believed in him, to those who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right, the authority to become children of God. The right to call God Father. See? Now once we're able, through Jesus, to call God Father, then here's his characteristics to us. Here's his attitude to us. He's the Father of all mercies. Now when we speak of mercy, we speak of, of, of an attitude of compassion. An attitude that sees the difficulty, sees the misery, and acts. That's the sense of being merciful. We could say this. We could say that God responds to our guilt in grace. He responds to our misery because of sin in mercy. They're obviously related. But you get the the distinction. So we say that God is the father of mercies. There's a sense in which when he sees his children in difficulty, being afflicted, there's a sense of compassion, a sense of even empathy. You know how the author of Hebrews puts it about Jesus, that he's our faithful and merciful high priest. You remember in the old covenant that priests were taken from the people. They were taken from the people, that is, the priest was one of the people. They were taken from the people so that they would understand the weakness of the people so that when they interceded for the people, they'd get it. They would understand it. And so Jesus was made to be one of us. Without sin, but one of us. So that he would sympathize with our weakness. So that when he intercedes for us, there's some real sympathy, empathy going on there And that's why he's our merciful high priest. He understands it. He gets it. He knows our weakness. And so when he pleads for us to the Father, who is the Father of mercy, so he's not pleading to to anything contrary to the Father, he's pleading for help to us. And so this is is true. No matter what the affliction, and, and I know what you're thinking, if you've gone through deep affliction and it's still wounding you, and you're thinking, but this hasn't happened yet. I know doesn't make this any less true. This is faith for you. And if you've experienced it in various measures, it's reality to you. So there's the praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies. That's a, that's a praise of faith and there's one. That's a praise of, of reality, of knowing. One to hang on to, to give you hope. The other... To worship. So he's, he's the father of all mercies. All mercies. Whatever mercy is necessary at any point in time. He's our father who loves us. And then he's the God of all comfort. He's the God of comfort. Meaning he's sovereign over it. 
And when this Bible speaks of comfort, it doesn't speak of comfort like a comforter, like we put ourselves under to make us feel warm. It might feel warm for a minute, or, or not comfort food that just makes us feel good at the moment. Uh, comfort is, is, is a fort, a fortification, a strength. He's going to come with strength to strengthen us. So when he says he's the God of all comfort, he means whatever affliction you're going through, God has the comfort, the strength, the fortification necessary for it. You might, you know, the, the Greek word, there's a couple of them that we use here, the related, this one is, is, uh, is, is uh, parakletos. Para means to come alongside. Kletos means to call. And so God calls himself really alongside us. To give us strength. And what Paul is saying here is that you need to know this because he knew it. He said you need to know that the source of all comfort comes from God who is merciful. He sees our affliction and he comes to give us strength. That's your hope. That's your hope. That's my hope to know that. So, so when we speak to missionaries, when I talk to our children and, and, and I tell them as they grow that, that following Jesus... Uh, is, is more than singing fun songs. It's not less, but it's more. And it's more than singing fun songs and, and feeling good and all of that. There's real cost in following Jesus. I can tell them that with integrity and I can tell them that with joy because I can say that, 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 that God has promised to sustain us, to fortify us, to strengthen us, whatever, whatever the affliction. So as we look down the road as Christians... And, 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 and if we see that we're going to become socially conspicuous and we can see there's cost involved in that or we can, we can see that we might be found to be counter the well-being of our society uh, and persecuted as others have been. Uh, you know, I, I find it really easy to say I'm willing to suffer the cost. I find it really difficult to imagine life without my house, without my friends, without my bank account, without my health. But the promise of God is that if it comes to that, you'll see it. He's the God of all mercies. You'll empathize. you know what we're going through. And he's the God of all comforts. And he'll bring us strength. So much so that we'll be able to say that these light and momentary afflictions aren't worth being that concerned about compared to the glory that we've gained through it. And as an American, we know a little bit about that. And maybe before our lifetime, we won't know that much, but maybe we will. And Paul knew that personally. We'll we'll get to other aspects of this passage next time, but but Paul knew that personally. Verse 8, For we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia for is so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we'd received the sentence of death. Now, one's emotional, spiritual state cannot be any more expressed than that statement expresses how desperate he was. In every way, we have it, it's hard to imagine, it's hard for me to imagine this great apostle saying something like this and it really being true. But it really was true. 
I mean, if you, you, if you read of Paul's life, and we'll do that, you read about the times that he was beaten. You read about the time he was shipwrecked. You read about the time he was left for dead. You read about the times that uh, he received 39 lashes or 40 lashes save one. Uh, we read about the fact that, uh, that he was stoned. We read about the fact that he was burdened all the time for the churches and wondering what's really going on there. And that was the course of his life. And, and it was real in his life. And, and the spiritual... Um, difficulties and struggles that he went through just like the rest of us and he knew that God was the God of all comfort and here's how he understood um, these difficulties verse 9 indeed we felt that we'd received the sentence of death but that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead he says here's the real distress, affliction of life. The real affliction of life is to go through difficulties and think you're alone. Not just think you're by yourself because there's no other humans with you, but to think you're by yourself so that it all depends on you. God isn't even there to help you. That's real Anxiety. Now may I say this kindly. Every unbeliever must suppress that anxiety in order to really live. You got to suppress that anxiety or how could you even face the next day? That anxiety is real for someone who doesn't, who hasn't been reconciled to God. It doesn't have the assurance, the confidence that yet God is really with me. I mean, it's hard enough for believers. I mean, we reread the psalmist who say, God, why do you hide your face from me? I know you're there. But why are you hiding your face from me right now? You, you know that. I know that. We've been there. We understand that. It was deep in Paul's experience. What he's telling us is, hold on. He's the father of mercies. He's the God of all strength. He'll come to you and he'll help you. Where you are, perhaps right now, is, is you're being taught And why it's taking whatever it's taking to teach you, I don't know. What it takes, why it takes whatever it takes to teach me, I don't know. But you're being taught not to rely upon yourself. That's real affliction. To think that whatever it is that's happening, that you are the only one who can solve it. And you're on your own. And he says, what suffering does, what affliction does, it takes us to the end of ourselves as believers. And it speaks to us. You can't do this. Rely upon me. And that's the source of strength. God relying upon him. Now, what form does that take and how does that work out? Various ways we'll consider them as we go through this letter. But but grab a hold of that. I want to grab a hold of that today to realize that I'm not alone. That God really is, is with me. We see us, Lewis, who said that God whispers to us in our prosperity. He shouts to us in our suffering. That's when we hear him best. Sadly, but that's when we hear him best. 
And he shouts to us, don't think you're alone. Don't rely upon yourself. Don't be anxious. Trust in me. How did the psalmist put it? Be still and know that I am God. Be still. New American Standard Bible puts it like this. Cease striving. Uh, Relax. And know that I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations. He says, you'll see it. Someday you'll see my glory. You're not seeing it now. Someday you'll see it. Trust me. It's there. I'm working on it. I'm working it out right now. Right now it means you're suffering right now. But, But a day will come when I'll be exalted among the nations, which means I'll be exalted in your life. I'll be exalted on the earth. And then he says, the Lord of hosts. Now that's an expression for the army of God that we can't see. The Lord of hosts is with you. The God of Jacob is your comfort. The God of Jacob is your fortress. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God of all mercies, the God of all comfort. Hmm. Let's pray, Father. For me, for us, I pray that we'd get it, we'd understand this, that I would understand this. That I would know that my life will be a continual life of being taught not to rely upon myself, but being taught to rely upon you. I pray that you teach me day after day after day after day. So that... I'll know it so that I, we can teach it to our children. We can teach it to others. We can share it with others. We can share it with one another in times of difficulty that, that, no, 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 we're not alone. I know it seems that way. We're not alone. God is with us. So I do pray for those in other parts of the world that are facing persecution on this day that they would know that you're with them. I pray that other believers can help them see that. I, I pray for our children that we can teach them that God is with them, that whatever we experience in terms of suffering and even persecution, that, that we'll learn that you're with us so that we can teach our children that as they grow and they face whatever it is that they're going to face in the course of their lives, that they'll know it too. And they'll be able at the end of the day with us to say these light and momentary afflictions. They're not anything worthy to be compared to the great glory that's to come. They'll really know that. They will really know that. Father, grateful for wonderful glimpses that you give us of glory. We thank you for little Hannah Lee's uh, um, uh, healing of the respiratory problem. And we thank you for the birth of the little baby uh, uh, this week. Um, To the Andersons, we're grateful, Father, for that child. We do pray for those who are suffering. We pray for Melissa Foster, that she would know that you are with her, that you will, our hearts desire that you heal her for uh, Meki, the same, and her family. She'd be with them. She'd bless them, keep them. For others, God, that are going through difficulties now, relationally or emotionally. For all of us, you'd enable us to hang on, to know that you're strengthening us even as we feel weak, that you are indeed with us. This I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.